Thank you, Ensemble. I appreciate them so much. Uh, if you have a prayer slip or visitor slip, we'd love to have it. And uh, Chandler and Will head up the aisle. If you pass that in, uh, we would gladly receive it and pray the Lord would minister to you as we worship him this morning. I'm in Romans 8, Romans 8, and I'm thankful for um, the challenge of um, this great chapter. Uh, we sang a moment ago, help us grasp the heights of your plans for us. And that's what I feel like when we're talking about revealed glory, and we'll unpack that in just a few moments. But we, I think we would agree that as believers in Jesus Christ, this world is a dark place. Every generation since the fall could say that. And this earth will never be our home. Is that too pessimistic for you? Well, we get our cues from Scripture, not from liberal fairness doctrines, nor Marxist utopian heresies or theories. The Apostle Paul described the believer's relationship in this world in Colossians 1. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and has ushered us and brought us into the kingdom of his dear son. In Ephesians 4, in describing a lost humanity in a spiral downward, the Apostle Paul wrote in Ephesians 4.18, they are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. But God is light. Jesus Christ is the light of the world and he's come to us and he has brought salvation to us, which is a work of the Spirit. At one time, we had no interest in the things of God. We had no interest in the Word of God. We would rather do anything, but think about that. And Christ has come. Someone shared the gospel with us. Someone told, uh, told us what God had done for us and that there was a Savior who could save us. And... We were brought to faith in Christ by a work of God. Your salvation is a supernatural miracle. He is our light and our salvation. He is our strength. God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and we walk in darkness, we lie and do not tell the truth, the Apostle John wrote. It's a dark world. I don't need to convince you of that. I was reminded this week... Um, of a song sung by a man known for wearing black, Johnny Cash. And in this song, the last stanza, I believe, he, he said, I, I'd love to wear a rainbow every day and tell the world that everything's okay, but I'll try to carry off a little darkness on my back till things are brighter, I'm the man in black. In reading the book of Romans, uh, this world seems to be wearing a shroud of darkness. The world is groaning. It's not what it was meant to be ever since the fall in Genesis 3. That's how we understand the world. Uh, the universe heaves and waits for redemption. In Romans chapter 1, Paul said, For although they knew God, speaking of every human being, although they knew God, through the revelation in a general way of creation, that revelation was suppressed and they began to worship the creation rather than the creator. They did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile, empty in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. 
what was true in Romans 1 is also true in Romans 8. And verses 18 through 25, this world seems to be wearing that dark shroud still. And we're in Romans 8, and we've learned a lot about God's redemptive purposes. That salvation has come through Jesus Christ, that we have peace with God, we're justified by faith in Jesus Christ alone, but still the world is groaning. It's what the world needs most. It's why the church exists in this world. It's not a popularity contest. It's a standing on truth and living it out. Um, We're enjoying the pilgrim's progress in our family right now. And in that classic by John Bunyan, he poses the world and the Christian life. And Bunyan warns Christians through this story that they'll never be totally free of the world's influence and hostility in this life, but that they must always be prepared to resist it and suffer at its hands. The world doesn't understand allegiance to Christ. The world doesn't understand his ways. The world doesn't respect his word. And so even Christian, the main character in the Pilgrim's Progress, his own family opposes him. And when Christian is warned of the coming wrath of God, he's greatly distressed over it. He understood that uh, in the story that it's appointed unto man once to die, then the judgment. And he's greatly distressed and resolves to leave the city of destruction. One of the many characters in this allegory is a character named Shame. And Shame assaults Christian and he says to him, it's pitiful, it's a pitiful business for a man to seek after religion. He said that a tender conscience, one that's sensitive to sin and a relationship with God, That's an unmanly thing. And that for a man to watch over his words and ways would make him the ridicule of the times. By calling the figure shame, Bunyan suggests that the world tries to ensnare the faithful from within in the form of lingering doubts. As here where shame tells faithful his religious concerns make him unmanly and laughable. And we're called to stand boldly for Christ in our generation. Jesus said, if you stand for me in this wicked and perverse generation, I will stand for you before my Father in heaven. So when you become a follower of Jesus Christ, you don't experience all the fullness of God's blessings now. Oh, there's a foretaste. There's a deposit of greater things yet to come. But we don't receive all the promises of God for his redeemed family. There's immeasurably more to come, friends. And I've I've deliberately thrown out a sandbag in our journey through Romans 8, and I'm going to take it slow for a month. Because I want to, you think, maybe you're thinking, can can we go slower? (laughs) Yeah, but I'm putting a sandbag out over paragraph verse 18 through 25 because I'm wanting you to understand the breadth of what God's word has to say about your future in Jesus Christ. What does it mean, this glory to be revealed? It's a life changer. And I thought about how that would change our understanding as we live life together as a community. And what happens when you live life together? Well, they're babies that are born. 
There's weddings to attend, there's baby dedications to rejoice over, and there's also funerals. There's trip, trips to the cemetery. There's tears. So what are we to think about that? What hope do we have in light of a sure and impending death? Oh, the hope is great. The hope is great, and I'm wanting us in this time together to just get our minds and hearts around the hope of what happens when we see a brother and sister die. What does that mean? How am I to understand that biblically? Is it really true that when a believer dies, their spirit goes to be with the Lord, awaiting an even glorious resurrection hope by which we will live for all of eternity with the living God? I'm wanting it to be more in your life than, well, yeah, yeah, I'm a Christian. I'm going to go to heaven when I die, as glorious as that is. <laughs> There's so much more I'm wanting us to see as a foundation to be a hope-filled people. When a brother or sister dies in this congregation and we gather around, we would sing with great hope and joy that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord and nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And so believers have a, a future destiny that is so bright with the fulfilled promises of God that it's really described in Scripture simply as glory. Glory. When the Bible speaks of glory, it seems sometimes like a long way off. Especially from the experiences that we face in the daily grind of life. If we do not strive to live in revealed truth, we can easily get spiritual vertigo and lose our way. Romans 8 verses 18 through 25 was written so that when suffering comes in your life, you would remember that that's not the full story. There's glory to come. And so I want to place my thoughts on several points. The first would be just some key considerations when you think about present sufferings, plural. That's what Paul says in verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time, of this age now, of this world now that is passing away, the sufferings of this present time. And it, he says, consider it. And it's logizomai. And we said, this is doing the math on it. This is a, a mathematical calculation. The, the root leads to the word logarithm. And you, it's something that Paul is holding up the scales. And he say, I, says, I want you to really think about this. That the weight of the present sufferings doesn't even compare to the future hope of glory for the believer in Jesus Christ. Now, I would imagine some might be saying, especially if you're reeling this morning and wondering, oh, Lord, I'm in church today, but man, my heart is heavy and broken and sad, and what hope do I have? And, you know, that somehow I, these pressures are coming down on you that somehow, you know, this is cavalier and kind of aloof. You need to just get over it. Look at the scale, you know. You know, your present sufferings don't even compare to those. That's not pastorally how I'm wanting to present this. We're called to be compassionate. We're called to be patient. We're called to be hopeful. We're called to enter in with empathy to, to, to one another's burden. We're called to bear one another's burdens and thus fulfill the law of Christ. 
So I'm not wanting to sound cavalier. We're simple, one, two, three, get over it. But I am wanting to hold up that our present sufferings don't even compare to the future weight of glory. Now that'll change your life if you think about it for very long. And you think of the worst news you could ever receive. A call in the middle of the night, which is never good. We've often said that life is tissue paper thin. You never know what'll happen in a day that change everything. And so the sufferings of this present time don't compare to what God has for those who love him. So, you know, when we think about our present sufferings, what, what causes that? You know, what causes sufferings? Well, you know, I'm okay with being accused of being simple-minded. It, it's, <laughs> it's rooted back to sin. It, it's rooted back to the garden where man was created in God's image and reflected his glory like no other part of his created um, universe. And so man was created in God's image to be like God and to represent God like no other created being. And sin changed all that. And now it would be be by the sweat of the brow. And every misery you know in this world and I know in this world can be traced back to that event. That's how we view the world. And I was reminded of um, a name in the Old Testament, Ichabod. Maybe you remember it for the headless horseman, Ichabod Crane. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about not a myth or a fairy tale. I'm talking about a son who was born in the days of Samuel and uh, actually Eli's grandson. And uh, his daughter-in-law named him Ichabod, suffering under the curse, which means God has parted. The glory has, the glory has departed. Ichabod means the glory has departed. And we live in a world that's in decay. And from Genesis 3 until now, sin has marred the image but hasn't destroyed it. We're created in the image of God. In fact, that becomes the, the, the basis for God's um, re- judgment and law on capital punishment. You take a human life, that's what it's going to cost you in premeditated murder. Sin has marred the image. And so we have in Scripture creation, the fall, rescue or redemption through Christ. All the generations were longing and waiting for him to come. And he came. And his life and death and resurrection are the centerpiece of history. Maybe you're saying, well, you know, I'm, I just enrolled in college and I'm in history and that's not how they're viewing the world. <laughs> that's, that's right. I understand that. But that's what we're reclaiming as truth. That's what we're standing on with regard to how we view the world as a Christian. God created the world and everything in it. Sin has brought the misery that we know and disobedience to God. God did not leave humankind in the lurch, but promised that one would come that would crush the head of the tempter. Jesus Christ came, lived a sinless life, died on the cross to pay for our sins, rose again from the dead, ascended into heaven, and is coming back again. 
That is the full orb Christian hope that through him we will receive a resurrection hope. And so presently our, our life, life in this world is met with futility. Look at Romans 8.20. For the creation was subjected to futility, emptiness. There's an emptiness about it. Jesus said, I've come that you might have life and have it to the full. And in the midst of the futility and misery of this world, we understand that there is life and abundance of joy in Christ. But that's just a foretaste of greater things to come. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of God who subjected it, him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself would be set free. We live in a world that is in bondage, a creation that is in bondage. And isn't that the rhythm of life? I don't know where you are in this rhythm, but Sinclair Ferguson in his book, Children of the Living God, wrote, there's a rhythm, a pattern to our Christian experience. Suffering leads to glory. Trials lead to victory. As long as man is the disgraced vice-regent of creation, that's our status now, disgraced vice-regent of creation, creation will always fall short of its intended purposes. We live in a world that falls short of its intended purposes. We live in a world that's under the second law of thermodynamics where it's constantly deteriorating. It's not getting better and better and better. Maybe you're saying, this is just too negative. When I listen to the progressives, they tell us how great it's going to be if we just listen to them. Without God and without hope in this world, with no answers to the big questions of life. None. Jesus said in his high priestly prayer, John 17, when Jesus he spoke these words. He lifted up his eyes to heaven. This is right before the cross, right before he's arrested in his crucifixion. He says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify me now with the glory which I had with you before the world was. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you've sent. I glorified you on the earth, having done the work that you called me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence, your own presence, with the glory which I knew with you before the foundation of the world. So just a little thought on present sufferings. That we live in a world that's futile and vain, but we're not without hope. We're following a Savior who's triumphed through it all. Look at verse 17. And this really set the table for this paragraph that we're looking at. But verse 17, if, if children, if we're children of God, and we are by faith in Christ, as the Spirit of God bears witness with our spirit, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. We're joint heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we also may be glorified with him. A shared relationship with Christ. So, Sufferings in this world, um, we take note and is part of what it means to follow Jesus. We share that in common with the rest of humanity. Now, notice with me secondly, glory is to, the glory to be revealed. The last part of verse 18, the glory that is to be revealed to us. What does that mean? Well, when we think about sufferings, as they're called in Scripture, 
How are they referred to? The cross-reference here is 2 Corinthians 4, 17 and 18. Light, <laughs> not me, pastor. You, what I'm dealing with, it's heavy. Well, I'm, I'm quoting the man that we looked at last week who had been through beatings and stonings and abandonment and every matter of human suffering. And he said, these light, momentary afflictions don't even compare. They're not worth comparing. So the surpassing greatness of the glory of God. So, so great is the glory that it dwarfs our sufferings. So maybe when we have times like the psalmist where, or in the book of Revelation, the martyrs say, how long, O Lord? What's the answer to that? Just a little bit longer. How long? Just a little bit longer. The creation groans. Look at verse 19. For the creation waits with eager longing. Now that's interesting. Phillips in his translation says, all creation is on its tippy toes. Waiting. Looking. Now, what, what part of creation? Well, it's not the animate part. It's not human beings. It's not the animals. The argument, Paul, Paul's using personification, that he's giving personal attributes to the physical creation. We live in a groaning creation. I was gripped 20 years, nearly 20 years ago on that December morning when I heard about that earthquake at the bottom of the Indian Ocean. And 200,000 souls, nearly 200,000 people died with the tsunamis. 200,000 gone. We live in a groaning creation where it could be 100 degrees for a month. Where hurricanes and tornadoes and mudslides and all a sundry of disasters coupled in with human catastrophes, car wrecks, train wrecks, airplane crashes. It's a groaning creation. And the physical creation, you know, it's on its tippy toes awaiting what? The glory of the sons of God. That means the glorification of God's people on its tippy toes. A groaning creation. Uh, Thomas Schreiner, a reliable scholar, the, the noun is rendered aptly uh, on tiptoe. The verb is also always used by Paul to refer to the end. What the creation waits for is the revelation of God's children, the redeemed, with resurrection bodies, our future glorification. So, Maybe you hear this glorification and it's not maybe lighting a fire in your soul. <laughs> and we're talking about glory and I, what does it mean? I, the word glory has many usages in the Bible and they're all wonderful. The Westminster, the Westminster Catechism says, what's the chief end of man? We may not know the Westminster Catechism, but we can know question one. What's the number one goal in your life? 
to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. What does glorify God mean? Well, we don't add anything to His worth or glory. The idea is that we are reflecting or displaying His glory. The goal and purpose of your life in Jesus Christ is to reflect the glory of God. For you and I to glorify God does not mean, again, that we make Him glorious. What could sinners offer to a holy, righteous, and perfect God? So how do you live for the glory of God? If glory is your future and you were saved and brought into the glory of Jesus Christ, how do you and I live that way um, week to week, day to day? Well, it means to live with a constant awareness of God's presence in your life. Asking yourself as you live, is God getting the glory in what I'm doing? What do you mean I'm cutting the grass? Is he getting glory while you do that? What do you mean I'm doing laundry? What do you mean I'm working on my computer? Is he getting glory in what you're doing? Am I giving God glory for this moment? The idea also includes refusing to expect or accept any of the glory that belongs to God. We're glory robbers. We want to receive for ourselves the glory that God should receive alone. Your relationship with Him, when you glorify Him, when you're seeking to live for His glory, your relationship with Him is priority over any other in this world. And that's the rubbing point for many people. It may be a stumbling block in your life. I'm not sure I can fully surrender to Christ. That means I'll have to give up all my friends and I'll have to stop doing what I really want to do. And that really is the question. Who are you going to follow? The psalmist said, oh, magnify the Lord with me. Come, let us exalt the Lord together. Let us exalt his name together. His glory to live in his presence. Now, last week I ask you to join me in several cross-references. I want to do that again this week. And I want to just, on occasion, I don't want to be obnoxious, but I want to just ask you to bring your Bible to church. Bring your Bible to church. I feel like we assume that too much. And I feel like we're not able to navigate the book as well as we should. So while We primarily deal with one text. There are occasions where I want to take us elsewhere and I will print them in the insert so you can look ahead and know. So I want to look first at in the Gospel of Mark, Mark 8.38 on this whole subject of glory. It's mentioned over and over and over again. Yes, we're called to live for the glory of God. There's a, uh, a present mandate about it, but there's also a future hope. Look with me at Mark 8.38. Here, Jesus said, for whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Wow. That's a call for allegiance, wouldn't you say? And he's speaking about coming in glory. If you turn the page to Mark 9, this is the Mount of Transfiguration. At Jesus' baptism, heaven spoke, this is my beloved Son, God the Father spoke, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. 
When you track the statements about Jesus throughout the Bible, never a man spoke like this man. The multitudes were amazed at his teaching. He was teaching as one having authority, not like the scribes and the Pharisees. In Mark 7, it says in verse 37, he has done all things well. He makes even the deaf to hear and the dumb to speak. He always did that which pleased the Father. And he resolutely set his face to go to Jerusalem. He predicted his death and declared, that's the purpose for my coming. He loved, he sacrificed, he gave, he forgave sins. He always did that which pleased the Father. And then Mount of Transfiguration. All the disciples had seen of him. Oh, they had heard his teaching and they had seen his miracles. But they saw the humble carpenter from Nazareth. And in time, they received him for who he was. And so he followed Jesus going alongside the Sea of Galilee. And he says to Peter, and he says, come, follow me, and I'll make you fisher, fishers of men. And it was a slow process. They began to hear him, and they began to confess him. And so at Caesarea Philippi, Jesus asked them, who do you say that I am? Well, some people were saying, you're one of the prophets. And so, who do you say that I am? And Peter said, you're the Christ. You're the Messiah. You're the son of the living God. And Jesus said, flesh and blood has not revealed that to you, Peter, but my Father in heaven's revealed that to you. And by the way, that's the only way any human being's ever convinced that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And so... What happens in Mark 9 is for a brief moment, Jesus takes Peter, James, and John. They go up on a mountain, and Jesus is transfigured before them. And they see him in his pre-incarnate glory, and it levels them. And they are just amazed at this sight, and who wouldn't be? So for a brief moment, these apostles saw the glory of Jesus Christ, the light, the radiance. Charles Haddon Spurgeon, the great Reformed Baptist preacher, says this, Christ is the central fact of world history. To him, everything looks forward or backward. All the lines of history converge upon him. All the great purposes of God culminate in him. The greatest and most momentous fact, which the history of the world records in the fact of his birth, which of course we come to celebrate as Christmas. And here the disciples were able to see the glory that was his before he came in Bethlehem's manger to see his glory. Presently, the world is in spiritual darkness. Jesus Christ is the light. Maybe you're walking in darkness now, wondering if God has a word for you. He does. Come, come to him. Come to him by faith. Receive him as the light and salvation of your life. See, Jesus Christ is fulfilling all of these things. And so on that Mount of Transfiguration, the disciples, the apostles would have a witness that Jesus Christ revealed himself. We saw his glory. In fact, Peter said that he saw the glory of Jesus, but God's word is even truer still if you would receive it and believe it. Look with me at another cross-reference in Philippians 3. Leaving the glory revealed on the Mount of Transfiguration, coming to the book of Philippians, 
Paul concludes this third chapter and he says, but our citizenship is where? Christian, where is your citizenship? Our citizenship is in heaven. We're grateful for the blessings of this earthly citizenship that we enjoy, but even greater still, uh, greater still is our citizenship in heaven. From it, what do we await? This is how Christians think. We await a savior, Jesus Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body into his glorious body. That's resurrection hope. Our bodies now that are susceptible to to sin and death and disease will be transformed like his glorious resurrection body. That is the full orb Christian hope. Maybe you're thinking, you know, the thought of my spirit going to be with the Lord and I'm getting my, a hard time wrapping, wrapping my head around it being a disembodied spirit in the clouds with the angels, and that's typically where that leads. That's not the biblical picture. The full picture is when Christ comes again, you will receive a resurrection body because flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. We need a resurrection body. And because he has risen, we shall be raised as well by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. There's one other cross-reference. Let me just mention Jude. There's a couple other in 1 Peter and 2 Peter, but I want to look at Jude. And I love to share this at gravesides. At the graveside service of a funeral, because it really, it's a benediction, it's a good word on who Christ is and what he offers. Jude 24, one chapter, Verses 24 and 25. Now to him who's able to keep you from stumbling. Isn't that a wonderful thought? That our salvation, in Christ, we are kept in salvation. Now to him who's able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. So part of salvation is Christ presenting you as a blood-bought believer before the throne of God with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now and forever. Be the glory, the weight. Let me close with this thought, and we'll land quickly. We long for glory because we once enjoyed it. Pastor, are you going on these weird time travel movie themes that are so popular today? where somebody lives in a different, no. That's not what I'm talking about at all. I'm talking about the headship in Adam, our federal head. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory to be revealed. The creation waits on tippy toes, um, longing for the revealing of the sons of God. So I'm not talking about existing prior to our birth. We enjoy glory once as a race in Adam. Do you see what is lost when you just throw away Genesis as unimportant in your Bible? You lose the whole theological stream of who Adam is, that in Adam we all die. And he was a representative of the entire human race. And while he fell and we fell in him and with him, we enjoyed glory once as a race too. 
Adam was made in the image of God, which he was created like him and to represent him in a kind of glory. He was like God and created to represent him. He was called to be fruitful, to multiply, to tend, to oversee, to rule, to bring into dominion as a creative mandate. I believe Adam and Eve's physical makeup were off the chart. Their beauty, pre-fall, their capabilities, pre-fall, unhindered worship. I've often said that if Adam had a bumper sticker after taking of the fruit, it would have said, I lost it all. A greater loss I don't think we would know in this life than when sin entered in. Oh my, what have we done? Well, the unhindered fellowship that they once had with the Father, they're hiding in the bushes. The one creature in all of creation that it was like him to represent him, they're hiding in the bushes. Once they had had unhindered worship and fellowship with God in the cool of the day, now it's shame and all that comes from it. James Boyce, in his usual precision, man was once a beautiful physical specimen. The man Adam and the woman Eve were the glory of creation. They excelled the rest of the created order in every respect. But when they sinned, physical decay, sickness, suffering, and eventually death came upon them. God said, dust you are, and to dust you will return. Isn't that the truth? They, they were not originally destined to die, but they, but they did die. Man was also beautiful in soul, the most beautiful in all the, of all the creatures. He had a nobility that transcends our ability to fathom. But once Adam and Eve sinned, that beautiful soul was tarnished. Now they began to lie and cheat and blame shift from their own failings to others. Most significant was the ruination of their spirits. The spirit was that part of Adam and Eve that had communion with God. They had walked and talked with God in the garden, but once they fell, they, they no longer sought God out. They hid from him and they encountered and the encounter was eventually um, brought about a judgment. The Puritan Richard Sibbs said, Satan gives Adam an apple and takes away paradise. In all temptations, consider not what he offers, the devil that is, consider not what he offers, but what we shall lose. So what's our condition today? We're frail, aren't we? I thought of the hymn, frail children of dust and feeble as frail. We enjoy glory once and we get a foretaste of that, if you'll be honest. We know there's more to life than what we see. We do have a void that only God can fill. And if we try to stuff in other stuff, it's not, it's, not, it's not gonna work. We were created to glorify God and enjoy him forever. That's made possible only through Jesus Christ. He is the one redeemer. 
He is the one who has come to save. He is the weight of glory. So may your hope be in him. That faith in Jesus Christ, the glory is to be revealed. It's beyond your comprehension. And there should be no greater allegiance in your life or in mine than Jesus Christ. We have, lo- we have relationships and deep love bonds in this world, but hold them loosely. What do you mean? Well, let me quote Tim Keller, and we'll, he, who passed away in May, and uh, we'll end with this. There's nothing wrong with loving your wife or loving your husband, but if your husband or your wife is the main thing in the world, one of you is going to see the other one in a coffin someday. Only God can be your hope. Only he can be your hope. So how can that happen in my life today? By running to him, receiving him, resting in his promises, calling out to him, which is why we're going to close the service in the way that we do that we would think through the commitments and priorities of our life and honor the Lord. Father, thank you for this time in your word. Thank you for a future glory. I pray in these messages that you would whet our appetite for greater things yet to come, that you would give clarity to our faith. And Lord, that you would deepen our love for you. Thank you for the hope that you have, a, have for us in the risen one. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. We've been singing this song, Complete in Thee, for a while now. And I think it's a wonderful um, chorus to link together all the themes that we've been studying in the book of Romans and to rest in his grace in our life. As we close the service, may we sing with all our hearts. If there are needs on your heart this morning, we would welcome the opportunity to pray with you. But all of us, may we be surrendered to him. Let's stand together as we sing.